Well, we are continuing our series in the book of Acts, and if you're just joining us uh, this morning or this week, um, we're in Acts chapter 7 this morning, so you can flip in your Bibles and turn over to Acts chapter 7. Uh, the book of Acts, um, our best sort of guess at when it was written and compiled was after the year A.D. 70, and, uh, and so by this time, by this time um, many churches and little congregations have started to form. It's been several decades after Jesus rose and ascended. And so these followers of Jesus, rather than being at one small band of followers that thought they would just kind of huddle together and wait till he came, um, all of a sudden now they're spreading and they're making disciples. They're doing what Jesus told them to do, but it's begun to spread. In fact, probably uh, most of Paul's letters were already written at this point. So there are these other churches that have been planted and started. And so it's, it's possible that one of Luke, who traditionally is um, ascribed as the author of Acts, it's possible that Luke's goal here for the, for the reader of the book of Acts is to get the sense of why the church began and what the church's mission on the earth is. And so as we study it, those questions are very real for us. Well, what are we doing here? What is this church business? Isn't it just Jesus and me? Well, no, no, it's not. And as we've been on this journey, we've sort of discovered that God's goal was always to make a people for himself. And we are that people. And, and so we've, we've kind of gone through uh, the, the first few chapters of Acts and getting us up to this point. And, and really, you, you, you can catch up on the podcast, the New Life Downtown podcast, so I don't recap. I could recap the first few weeks, but now that we're, you know, like eight or nine weeks into this, it's going to be too uh, cumbersome to recap all of it. But, um, but here we are at this, at this moment here in Acts 7. It's another sermon. Uh, I think about a third of the book of Acts is a collection of sermons. And this is the longest one out of all of them. I mean, this is like 50-some verses. Uh, and, and yet, if you were to read it out loud, it'd probably take five or six minutes or so just to kind of read it all the way through. So you imagine Stephen giving this sermon. But this isn't an ordinary sermon. This isn't Stephen just sort of standing up on a, at the synagogue or whatever and sharing a message to his, his group of friends. This is Stephen on trial. Last week, we talked about how there was this need that arose in the church, and, and there were these Greek-speaking widows who felt like they were being neglected while the Aramaic or Jewish widows were being fed. So there were some racial tensions already in the church. <gasps> I thought the early church was perfect. Nope. And, and so there's, there's these, these issues of, 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 of prejudice that's developing there. And, and, and the apostles say, look, you know what we need is we need some deacons, people who will rise up to meet the need. And we talked about that last Sunday. Well, they chose seven men, and these men all had Greek names. And so you kind of get the sense that God uses people who are the ones experiencing the, 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 the being marginalized or overlooked. God uses those people to meet the very need that is there. Uh, and, and how often that happens in our own lives. And so here's Stephen, one of these seven, who is, is remarkable in many ways. And he's being put on trial here because they're accusing him of getting the Jewish story wrong. They're saying that he's saying bad stuff about Moses and bad stuff about God. And it's possible that the insinuation here is, Stephen, you're kind of one of those Hellenized Jews, meaning you're Greek who kind of converted to Judaism, who then now believe that Jesus was Israel's Messiah. But what do you know? You're not authentically Jewish. This is not unlike what sometimes people say to me. They say, well, now, Glenn, you know, that's a very cute idea, what you're saying here about America, but I don't think you understand America. After all, you are an immigrant. You weren't born here, you know. And even though I've been in American school systems since I was 10, and I've been fully indoctrinated, believe me, with the glorious history of America, uh, I, I just nod and smile and say, you're right, because that's true. But so Stephen here is kind of being, being accused of saying, look, dude, you've got it wrong. You, you don't get the Moses story. And so in Stephen's defense speech, 
He gives the story of salvation. The title of our sermon this morning is called Our Salvation Story. And right away, the first thing we've got to say, uh, to, to notice about this, is that salvation is a story. It is a story. And this is maybe surprising to us because if any of us were to stand up, if I were to say, okay, you've got five minutes, here's the microphone, share the gospel. Most of us would not reach for a story, we would reach for a set of ideas, right? We would reach for a set of steps, maybe. Okay, well, step one, you've got to believe this, and then step two. And look, none of that's wrong, but it's just so different, isn't it, than what Stephen reaches for. When he's being asked to give an answer for the things he's saying and doing, when he's asked to give an answer for the way he's living, which is an extraordinarily different way of living, and they say, Stephen, what do you have to say for yourself? He doesn't say, well, let me prove to you that God exists, and first of all, there's a moral law, and then we've all broken the law, and, I mean, and then there's this chasm between us. I mean, he doesn't go through this series of steps. He tells a story. Now, that's interesting, because you and I are used to a modern, rationalistic approach to faith. We want it all to make sense, and we've got steps, and we can explain it, and it's this Step one, God made the world. Step two, man sinned. Step three, Jesus came. Step four, pray this prayer. Step five, give your money to the church. Sorry. <laughs> We've got it all worked out. But there's something missing about a series of steps or what someone has called dragnet theology. You know, just the facts, ma'am. Just the facts. Please, there's a few of you that know dragnet. Others are like, what's dragnet? Yeah, this old TV show. Anyway. And it's this approach to God that says, I can figure God out, and life is full of facts. Let me just tell you, it's a fact God made the world, and it's a fact. That, you know. And you're like, whoa, sorry, facts. But Stephen doesn't throw a bunch of facts out there. He tells a story. And there's something so powerful about a story. A story has room for mystery. A story has room for things that you don't quite understand in it. When you are into a story versus a series of facts, there's room for things that don't quite sound right, and you're not quite sure how these things fit together because a story just says, here it is. And there's room for a little bit of mystery. Can I say to you that a God that you can explain and understand is not God at all? A God that you can fully nail down and say, he's like this, 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 is not truly God. A God that is within and submitted to our reason is not fully God. That there's some, the reason the Bible comes to us as a narrative, a long, huge, beautiful narrative, is because God's not asking us to explain Him. The Bible doesn't read like a, like a, like a, a book that starts out, chapter 1, this is the transcendence of God. Chapter 2, the love of God. God doesn't ask us to understand Him by concepts. He gives us a story. Now a story has room for mystery, but a story also has room for beauty. Because in a story, you get moved, you get drawn into it. Think about how a story can move you and make you see these different things. I was thinking it's actually quite a bit like music. I'm sort of a child of the 80s, and one of my favorite sort of 80s anthems is U2's Where the Streets Have No Name. I mean, and that child agrees. Amen. 
I mean, I think the only like arena rock show I've ever been to, uh, besides DC Talk, was uh, was uh, was was U two. And and you and, and and I remember the moment where the you know the, the pad sort of fills in, and then the edge starts, and then the kick drum starts going, and you're like, you just want to like jump, and that's that's the power of music now. What if I said to you, oh, where the streets have no name? Yes, you see, you see, that starts with the one chord for like four bars, and then it goes to the four chord for another four bars, and then it goes to the six minor uh, for a couple bars, then it goes to the five chord, and so half of you are like, I have no clue what you're talking about. Others of you are like, oh yeah, I, I, is, that, is that the chord progression? You know? And then it goes to the flat seven, right? Big Steve's looking at me, we played in a band for many, many years. We, we've probably covered this song as a way of getting into I Am Free or something like that. But... but which, anyway, um, so, so I could explain where the streets have no name to you in terms of the chord progression, the one, the four, the six, the five, the flat seven, back to the one, and you'd all look at me like you're looking at me now. Yeah. But if you were here and the band was playing it, you wouldn't be analyzing their chord progression, you'd be just swept up in it. And that's the difference between someone saying to you, give an explanation of why you're living the way you do. And you say, okay, well, fact number one is God made the world. Fact number two. And they're looking at you like, what? Instead, the Bible comes to us in a story. A story that invites us into the beauty of it and sweeps us up into it and moves us with it. See, a story has room for mystery. A story has room for beauty. But a story also has room for you. A good story draws you into it. Think about maybe a good fiction novel or a good movie or a good TV show that you watch, and all of a sudden you're like caught up in it. You're like, you're in the story, you're in the moment, you're kind of feeling it. A good story is not just about information, it's about participation. It makes you join it. It makes you see yourself in it. It makes you kind of say, yeah, I am kind of like that. This is why... So much of the scripture comes as a story. But you know what? This is, now, this is going to mess with you maybe just a little bit. One of the ways that the, the, the Hebrew people would tell stories is they would, it's, it, it wasn't for them um, about historical reporting, okay? It was about retelling and telling, telling and retelling stories about events, different ways to emphasize different points. So that's why you could read First and Second Chronicles and First and Second Kings, and they overlap, but they emphasize different things. One First and Second Kings emphasizes the failure and the wickedness of the kings. First and Second Chronicles emphasizes the faithfulness of God. Well, now which is it? Well, it's both. It's maybe the difference between a photograph and a painting. See, we imagine that the Bible is a book of facts, and so every story must be like a crime scene photograph that we can use as evidence, and this is how the flood happened, and this is how this happened, and this is the story of Abraham and Isaac, and this is, you know, and we want every detail to kind of match up, and if it doesn't match up, if some parts of it were expanded or embellished or exaggerated, and you're thinking, wait a minute, that can't be true, you've missed the Jewish art of storytelling. Because they would tell a story and then retell it and retell it and retell it. And each time they told it, there would be a different point of emphasis. In fact, in Acts 7, Stephen tells the story of Moses. And he says that because the Hebrew slaves um, were angry at him, they drove him out. But actually what Exodus says is that the Egyptians drove him out. 
Well, now, wait a minute. The Bible's got errors in it. No, the Bible's just not a book of facts. It's not a, it's not a black and white crime scene photograph that you are meant to say, this is how it was, historical documentation. No, it's narrative. And it's narrative like a painting that says, yeah, here's the picture, I'm painting it, and, and I'm going to bring out the reds this time. Someone else tells them they painted it, I'm going to bring out the, the, the yellows this time. And, and that makes us uncomfortable because we're Western rationalist people. I want to know what's the absolute, concrete, scientifically verifiable, verifiable proof. And a story doesn't work that way. A story works like a painting. It's, it's, it's looser than that. There's room for that. And all the artists in the room are saying, oh, this is so awesome. And all the non-artists are like, this is so frustrating. Well, Salvation is a story. But salvation is not just a story. It's a single story. It's one single story from beginning to end. A single story. And the reason I'm saying this is because we have this tendency to kind of think of the Old Testament as sort of uh, God trying something. He tried working with these people and He tried giving them rules. But oh man, they couldn't follow the rules. So then He said, forget the rules. Let's just go grace. Here's Jesus and let's just do that. Now you may not admit to this, but probably that's what you grew up thinking of the Bible. That God tried the heavy-handed parenting approach and that didn't work and then He said, okay, forget this. That's just, what do you want? You want to go to ice cream? Get some ice cream? <laughs> We've all had parenting days like that. You know? <laughs> I'm thinking about myself managing three kids while my wife's with the baby. I'm like, how about ice cream again today? Let's get out of the house. You know? And we sort of imagine that God is like this, this fickle parent who tried the rules, that didn't work, and so he's doing the ice cream thing, you know. But that's not it. Salvation is a single story. That means from beginning to end, God had the same goal in mind. That's important to realize. There's a couple of preachers that are gaining some popularity, that are from the East, that are gaining popularity in the West, that are saying things like, Don't worry about the Old Testament. That's the Old Covenant. This is the New Covenant and all this stuff. Can I tell you that part of the way Hebrew is such a picture language that part of the the thought behind New Covenant and Old Covenant is very similar to the way we talk about a new moon and an old moon. A new moon is not a brand new moon. Nobody in their right mind thinks that every 28 days, oh, it's a brand new moon. (laughs) No, it's the same moon new again. Okay, in a very similar way, New Covenant is this old, old promise that God began, that He completed and culminated and fulfilled, and it's now new again. That's, that's a way to think about it. This could be a whole separate sermon, but honestly, that's how I think about uh, even new creation. It's this one reclaimed and restored and reconstituted. So when I see fires burning, I weep. Because I'm not thinking, well, God's going to burn it all anyway. <laughs> I, I don't think that. And someone asked me what, to explain the verse in 2 Peter. Now I'm far into this rabbit trail. And I, and I will. At some point this week when I have a sane moment and have had enough sleep, I will write a little blog about why I don't think it's all going to burn anyway is the attitude we have. Okay? But you'll see glimpses of that this morning. You know, it's the same single story. Salvation is a single story. So, what is it? What is this story? What is this story that, that, that Stephen begins to tell? Um, the backdrop to this story, the, the, the part, there's parts of it that he doesn't say because it's kind of an assumed backdrop. Um, it's a little bit like, how many of you are Star Wars fans? Okay, How many of you like, are true Star Wars fans as in you watched Star Wars 
and you were like angry at Darth Vader, and then you watched Empire Strikes Back, and you found out that he says, Luke, I'm your father. And you, with Luke, screamed, No! I'll never join you! If you remember that, you know this feeling of like, that can't be the backstory. These Jewish leaders have, are convinced that Jesus was the bad guy. And Stephen's kind of saying, no, he's your father. No, no, you're the bad guy. You know? and, 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 no, it's not like that, but it kind of is like that. And they're saying, no, we'll never join you. Um, so Stephen is retelling their story, but he's putting a significant twist on it. The backstory that they all would have known is Genesis 1 and 2. God made this world and God called it good. This is a good world. But then Genesis 3 through 11, we have this story of sin and rebellion and what it does to God's world. And I want you to, if you picture people, picture things coming apart. In Genesis 3, you have the human-God relationship coming apart. And very quickly after that, you have the male-female relationship coming apart. She made me do it. He said... And then in Genesis 4, you have the brother relationship coming apart where Cain murders Abel. And then shortly after that, in Genesis 6, 8, 7, 8, 9, you, you, you have the human earth relationship coming apart where the ground itself is cursed and, 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 and the flood gets poured out and you're thinking, whoa, waters that were supposed to be full of life are now an agent of destruction. But even so, God preserves and elements of his original creation. Again, that rabbit trail, take it with me. If God wanted to destroy this earth, he should have done it at the flood. Instead, he goes to great lengths to say, keep the original animals, keep the original stuff, we're going to redeem this. Interesting, isn't it? Just makes you think. Okay. Genesis 9, humans and the earth breaking apart. Genesis 11, at Babel, you have societies now breaking apart. Now you have Families against families, basically. We've got languages that divide us. It's all coming apart. The reason this Genesis storyteller does that is to set up the crisis and then to say, here we are, Genesis 12, God calls Abram. And he calls Abram and says, look, through you I'm going to bless all families of the earth, which is a way of saying, I'm launching the salvation project that puts everything back together again. The Greek word for salvation is this idea of, carries with it this idea of wholeness, of putting it all back together again. The Hebrew idea of shalom is wholeness. The story of the Bible is the God making the world whole and together, and sin ripping it apart, and God saying, I'm not left this world, I'm still putting it back together again. And so Stephen begins with Abraham, Acts 7, verse 2. Stephen responded, Brothers and fathers, listen to me. Our glorious God appeared to our ancestor Abraham while he was still in Mesopotamia, before he settled in Haran. And God told him, Leave your homeland and kin and go to the land that I will show you. And so Abraham left the land of the Chaldeans and settled in Haran. After Abraham's father died, God had him resettle in this land where you now live. And God didn't give him an inheritance here, not even a square foot of land. However, God did promise to give the land as his possession to him and to his descendants, even though Abraham had no child. 
God put it this way, His descendants will be strangers in a land that belongs to others who will enslave them and abuse them for 400 years and I will condemn the nation they serve as slaves and God said, and afterward they will leave that land and serve me in this place. Another word, another translation says, and they will worship me in this place. There are three themes that emerge in Stephen's sermon and if you follow it with me, the first theme is worship. Where God says, where Stephen's basically saying, God calls Abraham so that there can be a people that worship him. But then very quickly he goes on and says, now Abraham's descendants, you know, he had Isaac and Isaac had Jacob and Jacob had these, these sons and these brothers, but there's infighting even among those brothers. Do you remember this story? The, there's these brothers that try to kill who? Joseph. And then Stephen goes on to point out this. He says, now Joseph turned out to be the very person that God used to bring, um, to save you in your time of famine. In other words, Joseph was a rejected redeemer. That's Stephen's point. He's saying, God, you rejected him? God used him to be the, re- your, the redeemer, the one who would save you in famine. In other words, you people are clueless. And then he, in, in case you can kind of see where he's going here, you're like, uh-oh, this sounds like something they did with, with someone else. And then he builds his point. He goes, and then the story keeps going. And then there was Moses... And you remember what you did to Moses? You drove him out of Egypt because he had murdered that guy and you, were, you, you, you didn't want to have anything to do with him. And yet Moses was the one that God used to redeem you. So wait a minute. Worship. Joseph is a rejected redeemer. Moses is a rejected redeemer. And then he says, and then after Moses saved you, you went out in the wilderness and guess what you did? You started worshiping idols. So wait a minute. God's plan was to have a people that would worship him not only did they reject the redeemers, they began worshiping idols. Stevens to- told this story in a no- very non-glorious way. In fact, in a very harsh way. And this is how he lands it and brings it home in a very sugary, sweet way. Verse 51, you stubborn people. In your thoughts and hearing, you are like those who have had no part in God's covenant. He's basically saying to them, you're not even like covenant people. <gasps> I mean, that's like the worst... That doesn't sound bad to you, but this is like the worst thing you could say to them. You continuously set yourself against the Holy Spirit just like your ancestors did. Was there a single prophet your ancestors didn't harass? They even killed those who predicted the coming of the righteous one. Uh-uh. Who's he talking about now? Jesus. And you've betrayed and murdered him. Dun, dun, dun. Now Stephen's landed the plane. Now he's saying, okay, guys, I ain't just talking about history. I'm talking about you. You've done this. You received the law given by angels, but you haven't kept it. You might say that Stephen's point in his sermon is this. We are notoriously unfaithful. We are notoriously unfaithful. That's what he's trying to say. He's like, look, from the beginning... You couldn't, you, you, you reject, you missed it with Joseph, you missed it with Moses, you started worshiping idols. There's not one point in your story that you could say, ha ha. Stephen kind of retells it to say, you ain't got nothing to be proud of. You've been notoriously unfaithful. In fact, the Old Testament is kind of like, you know, season one of a two season, you know, TV series or something like that, where it kind of drops you, it puts you right at the edge of the cliff and says, what's going to happen? And what we want to know at the end of the Old Testament is, what is God going to do now? What's He going to do? 
is he really going to come through? Did he, is he really going to fulfill his promise? Is he actually going to do this? Because what we see is a nation that's been unfaithful, that's gone into exile, that's split into two and gone into exile, and there's fragments of a people left, and there's just not much here. And you're saying, God, that you're going to use this people to be a blessing to all nations? Yeah, right. Have you ever felt that way? Have you ever been at the edge of the cliff where you say, God, now what? What are you going to do now? How in the world are you going to come through? Because it doesn't look like you will. Have you ever been there? Have you ever been right at the edge of the cliff where you feel like, okay, God, I know I've been unfaithful, but what are you going to do? I mean, it's over, right? It's over. It's got to be over, right? When I was a single dude, I hated um, stories of people's labors and delivery. But now I'm a married guy, so, and I have four kids, so I'll just tell you a little bit of it. <laughs> this, um, this is our fourth, and, uh, and my wife, Holly, wanted to do something differently this time. She wanted to not, um, not have any pain medication or drugs or you know, the epidural or any of that and wanted to have a, a labor coach, a doula, kind of lead her through that. And, and uh, you know, to, to be honest, it's a little bit like someone saying, I want to hike Mount Everest. You know, it's like, well, you don't have to. Uh, you know, I mean, you, you, you can see pictures. Of it. Like, you don't have to do it this, this way. Um, but when a person decides to do it and that person is your spouse... <laughs> Then you say, all right, well, then let's do it. And God help us actually get through this. And, and I don't know if this in, encourages or discourages or whatever. I'm <laughs> <laughs> so it's just there, okay? It was the most um, painful and intense thing I've seen my wife go through. And yet... It was the most bonding experience that she and I have ever had together. Oh, it's up there. And, and part of it is because I think with, with, with our previous ones, anyway, how it worked for us is, you know, four hours into labor or whatever with the epidural, we were on our third DVD, you know. We're like, what else do you want to watch before it's go time, you know. And, uh, and maybe that's not your experience. I don't, you know, don't mean to be insensitive, but that was ours. And, and this time around, it was not like that at all. It was every, every few minutes, there was a, the world was ending, you know. <laughs> And, um, and to see not only pain, but sometimes fear, and sometimes not only fear, but despair. The feeling of, I can't do this. This is not going to, I can't go on. I can't go on. There was a moment where I was sort of, you know, giving her encouragement and thinking like, okay, babe, by sunrise, I think by sunrise, I think this is going to be, we'll have our little girl, you know, sunrise. Well, the sun had risen, and it was 6 a.m., and the, the shades were open in the hospital room, and, and they come in, and, and we find out that we're actually still got a ways to go. We're not really that close. And the, the feeling of, like, I don't have anything left. The feeling of, I can't. I don't, I don't know. Just the sinking, utter bottom of despair. And then something changed. I won't be graphic. And 20 minutes later, our little girl was born. It, it switched from like despair to all of a sudden, okay, we're here, okay, it's time, let's go. Boom. And through all of this, there's this miracle of new life. 
And it, I, I, we're, we're sitting there, we're weeping and all this stuff, and all through this whole thing, I'm writing a sermon in my head. <laughs> I know, I know. It's an occupational hazard. But I can't help but think that this is the gospel. That right when you come to the end of yourself and you say, no, no, I can't do, I can't do another minute. This is too hard. This is too heavy. It's hopeless. It'll never end. It'll never stop. It's all over. I, 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 and all of a sudden, there is God. There is God. And this is what happens in the story of our salvation. Israel comes to the edge of the cliff. They've failed. They've been notoriously unfaithful. The nation has come apart into, speaking of things coming apart, Israel comes apart. They go into exile, first by Assyria, then the southern kingdom by Judah. It's all a mess. It's in shambles. And they're wondering, is God really going to do what He said He would do? And then, in the fullness of time, Jesus came. And then, right when things reached its pinnacle, Jesus, a baby, is born. Jesus comes onto the scene. And Jesus doesn't come as a random race. He doesn't come as a, a Sinhalese who was, you know, or a Malaysian or whatever, or a Chinese. Jesus comes from Abraham's seed. Why? Because it's God's way of saying, you see, I don't give up on what I promised. God does not scrap His projects. God does not forget His promise. God does not abandon His people. God does not give up. God is gloriously faithful. We are notoriously unfaithful, but God is gloriously faithful. Gloriously faithful. At this point, I want to show you pictures of my little girl, just because I can. You've got it up there, Jim? Just click over to the... There she is. Born at 623 on Wednesday morning. Her name is Jane Michael Pacquiam. Her middle name is Michael because that's Holly's maiden name. We wanted to do something. And the next slide here is of all of us. There we are. All right, you can go to the next one, Jim. God does not scrap his projects. God does not forget his promise. God does not abandon his people. I want us to meditate on that this morning. The New Testament says that Jesus is the faithfulness of God. He is. Romans kind of says it as Jesus is the righteousness of God. One way of seeing that phrase is Jesus is God's covenant faithfulness. Jesus is how we know that God doesn't switch tracks here and say, ooh, that didn't work so well. Israel, Abraham, yeah, I know I made Abraham that promise, but I don't think I'm going to do that. Uh, Jesus, just come. But that's sometimes how we Protestants think, isn't it? We forget that Jesus came as this fulfillment from the seed of Abraham. And every Jewish person who called on the name of Jesus and believes in Jesus knows that this is God's way of saying, I don't forget my promise. I don't abandon my people. I don't scrap my projects and start over. I don't do this. Here in Colorado, we remember at the end of the playoffs, John Elway saying that Tim Tebow would be the starting quarterback at training camp this year. Well, how'd that work out? Because 
he knew that this guy wasn't going to, he's not really going to help us win. But see, God is the kind of God that says, I know, I know you've been unfaithful. I know that like half your passes end up in the dirt instead of in the receiver's hands. I love Tebow too, don't get on me. It's a metaphor here now. I know that you aren't working. But just to show that it's me and not you, I'm going to do it anyway. Just because I don't change plans. People say sometimes, like, well, God first chose Israel and then now he chose us. That's not true. He had one single plan and Jesus is the culmination of it. And, and in fact, because Israel was so notoriously unfaithful, it only shows, in Jesus, it only shows how much more gloriously faithful Jesus is. Amen? This is why Paul, this is Paul's argument in Romans where he says, look, the more you see the depths of our sin, the more you see the glory of God and God's grace. We couldn't do it. It was the end. We were at the edge of it. We thought, no way. And God says, yeah, 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 yeah. No, no, no. It's me. It's me. I will finish what I began. We're going to get there. So powerful is this that even death is not the end. This is not the end. Whatever you're facing, whatever you're going through this morning, your story is really actually part of this story. Sometimes we kind of imagine that it's our story and we want God to be involved in it. God, will you bless my business? God, will you help my kid? God, will you do this? And I understand why we think that, but this morning I want us to kind of lift up our eyes and say, wait a minute, I'm part of this story. This big salvation story, I'm in it. I'm not trying to ask God to join my itty-bitty story. I'm trying to find myself within His magnificent story. And as you do that, you realize, wait a minute, even when the worst happens, even when you're on the edge of the cliff and you say, God, no more, I can't take it, you have to say, Jesus, I know this is not the end. I know it's not the end. Because I know God is gloriously faithful. God doesn't scrap His projects. God doesn't forget His promises. God doesn't abandon His people. Jesus is how we see that. Amen? In fact, one of the other things we can see in this story is Stephen really highlights three characters, Abraham, Joseph, and Moses. But if we were to, to use a little bit of that art, artistic imagination with the Bible, what you can see is, yes, Jesus is the culmination of this story, but Jesus is also the truest version of each of those characters. Jesus is the true and better Abraham, the one who left his father's house and who gained a family and inheritance of the nations. Jesus is the true and better Joseph, the one who was rejected by his brothers, put into the pit, but who ascended to the right hand of the Father, the one who now feeds all of us suffering in the famine of this sinful world. Jesus is the true and better Moses, the one who sets us free and gives us not simply a law, but the Spirit, so that freedom is ours. See, Jesus is where this story was going. Jesus was always where this story was going. One of the reasons with our children's curriculum downstairs, we use something called the true curriculum, it's the big God story. It helps our kids not just see random Bible stories, but helps them see it 
as one big God story. As parents, Holly and I love this, this kid's Bible called the Jesus Storybook Bible. Honestly, it's great for kids of all ages because it helps you keep your eyes on Jesus and say, Jesus is always where this story is going. Where you are today and you're saying, God, where is my life going? Where is my story going? It's going toward Jesus. Stephen begins by saying, the God of all glory, called Abraham. And then the last few verses it says, and then Stephen saw Jesus standing in the glory of God. It begins with the God of all glory and it ends with all the glory going to God. You see, it was never about us. Yes, we're in it. Yes, we're involved in it. Yes, there's a place for you in it. But God's story begins with the God of all glory and it ends with all the glory going back to God. Jesus, Jesus, Jesus. Amen?